I love the the process. I think I think like um, making the sausages and small goods like it's it's it has to be super clean and super precise. And I, I love I love that about it. I, I think it's still fascinating. And even you know when I fell in love with it at Stone Barns, seeing um, the sausage song like it's just meat and salt and it gets hung up and blooms with white mold and it's 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 actually quite incredible. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There have been many people that have taken skills and lessons learned in one vocation and used them as the backbone of another, but few have done it quite like Luke Powell. The former head chef of Tetsuya's now has one of the most exciting small goods brands in the country with LP's Quality Meats. Luke, how are you going? I'm good. How are you? Good. It's good to get you on the show, mate. You've um, done some amazing things with this small goods company, um, particularly in the last sort of year and a half. How are things going? It's good. It's good. We've sort of been a bit um, choppy and changey with with the restaurant opening, restaurant closing, um, but we are we the restaurant is firmly shut now, and we're just focusing on doing um, production out of the space. Um, but it's good. It's a very um, we had to pick a lane, and, and and this is it. So it's it's good. It's good. Good clear path. You, you built an amazing career as a chef. Did you ever envisage, sort of, while you were building that career, that you would end up as a, as one of Australia's best small goods producers? <laughs> no. <laughs> and there's quite often days where we're in there just filling sausages, going far. This is what we're doing. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's a bit surreal sometimes. But I do love it, and um, and I guess there's a lot of. Um, parallels i guess with just food production as well as being, working in restaurants and and if, as a producer um but it's the uh, i guess just like I, I find like the sort of similar um thing is just the the constant refinement through repetition is the is the matter um but yeah the the evolution of LPs is quite fascinating. Um, you know, back in the day, it opened as as the restaurant, and and as you know, I've eaten there many times. And you've transformed it and built it into built it into a facility now. When did you make that change, sort of mentally, to go from restaurant to really pushing into the small goods? So we were always producing all these products for ourselves as a as a restaurant, and um, and then a few other people started coming out asking us for. For products, um, and and so we started doing it, and um, it started getting obviously more and more sort of growth, and and then we were thinking um, potentially we should um, build build a, a, a small good processing area in the in the restaurant so we could do it properly, get a bit more um, better equipment, and that was right before COVID, um, and. So all the plans were all the plans were set, and we were going to close and, and start the build, and then COVID happened, and luckily our business just just kept going um, through through the pandemic, and then when we reopened again, there was no wholesale small goods. All the restaurants were shut, um, so we we decided to to um, to open up in some sort of way and started doing obviously takeaway boxes and any which thing we could we could do to stay open. Um, and then, uh, yeah, once once sort of things started opening back up again, we continued on with the with the small goods, and then decided to open the restaurant again. And and now it's now you've sort of got a purpose built facility in the space that was the restaurant. What was it like building that? And and tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so we've sort of lost half the restaurant. We used to sit about 120 um, people, and it was really kind of 
you know, as you said, you've been there, but like bear hall style, like large communal tables. It was it was quite rowdy, and it was almost like a bit of a carvery. We used to smoke, you know, all the all the products and and cut them onto trays. Um, and uh, and then with the with the rebuild, um, there's a huge refrigerated um, work area. It sort of sits around ten degrees, and then a um, humidity controlled salumi fridge for doing the saucisson and, and dry cured products, um, and then a large storage area out the back. So we sort of lost half the restaurant. Um, and then, yeah, got this space. So it, it's kind of weird, but it felt like we were solidifying the niche a little bit. We're like, you know, there's nowhere like this, really. Um, but then, the, yeah, the restaurant went down to about 60 seats. And then when we decided to open it back up again, um, yeah, but the, the food changed a lot. Like, um, we wanted it to be a bit more refined. It was a lot more manageable being a, a smaller size. And then, of course, Izzy came on, um, Isabel Little. She was she joined us as the, as the head chef. And um, yeah, and took it in, a, in another direction again. And that allowed you the space and time to really push LP's um, small goods brand. And um, what's been the real sort of big successes product-wise of of that as you pushed it out into the market? I think um, the mortadella was the was the small good that started it all. Um, we, we we laugh because we we were producing sort of twelve kilos a week in a benchtop RoboCoop, and it was um, you know. <laughs> batch after batch after batch blending this thing to make two six kilo logs we were using one and, and Mitch or Acme was using the other one and we were just thinking there's got to be a there's got to be a better way um but uh yeah so the mortadella is is, is is still very popular we we make it sort of quite traditionally but it gets smoked for about 10 hours overnight um and then the sausage on sec so it's just a very simple garlic and black pepper um mold ripened salami um, and it's the only dry product, uh, dry cured product we do. Um, but we, we can't really make enough. It's just, it's very popular. It's very good. And I'm, I'm obviously very biased, but um, yeah, it's a, it's a great, great product. Well, um, you know, Australians grew up with um, Devon sandwiches. Well, certainly I did when I was young and um, which was kind of like a poor man's mortadella in a way, but you really put mortadella back on the sort of back in focus in Australia. I mean, it's your products in restaurants all over the country. And um, tell us about making it. What does it take to make yours? So the mortadella, and again, it's gone through many iterations as we've been learning as we're going and and even just transitioning it from a from a product that we use in the restaurant to something that then has to, you know, stand up in, in, in other restaurants and then, you know, how does it get packaged or whatever. Um, but basically we, we make an emulsion um, just with a pork leg and um, seasonings, spices, salts, um, and then emulsify um, pork fat into it. Um, we fold uh, fat and peppercorns through it, gets filled into a six kilo casing, and then, yeah, smoked with, with iron bark and applewood overnight. Wow. But it's a, it's a funny thing. <laughs> it's, it, it's amazing. What, what sort of production are you doing compared to those early days when you're doing two of those uh, logs, as you mentioned? Two logs? Yeah, so I think they probably do around. Uh, maybe 30, 30 mortadella, 30 or 40 mortadella a week. Um, yeah. That's extraordinary. I want, to ex- I want to explore more about LPs and the role that pork plays with everything that you do as well because it's so integral with so many of your products. But take us back to when you were young. What, what was food like for you growing up? Um, so food, I, I grew up in New Zealand and it was pretty um, – standard I, I imagine like sort of meat and three veg kind of thing and um my mum was actually quite a good cook she she trained um as a chef she never actually got into a career but um when I was around uh 13 I, I'd started washing dishes 
and um, I was super into it straight away. And so she was sort of saying that she always wanted to be a chef. Um, and so she was a really good cook. Um, and yeah, I was always helping, helping her out. Um, yeah. In, in the kitchen. Do you remember any sort of, um, dishes that stood out from, from when you were young that she did? Um, not really. I was thinking I, when I, when I'd spend time with my dad, he would always cook pork chops. Um, and that was the thing that we'd always sort of, I'd always hang out for, and they weren't cooked in any which way, um, with crackling or anything like that, like the skin was chewy as, you know, <laughs> but I loved it, you know, just get her, get in there and grab the bone and, you know, gnawing on this, uh, on this rind. Um, but it was always good, a good time. You mentioned that your mum triggered your interest in, in food. Tell us about the beginnings of your career as a chef. How did you get your foot in the door and what was it like? So it was, um, I remember it was school holidays and I think mum was sort of sick of me uh, loitering around the house and, and, whatever. So they ended up calling a local restaurant to see if they had any jobs available. Um, so I started washing dishes there and first day I was just absolutely hooked. Like it was, I just loved it. I was absolutely terrible at my job. I'd walk out there after the brunch shift and the dishes would be piled up around my head. Um, but I was done for the day and I, I just, um, yeah, I think I came close to, to losing that role a couple of times, but, um, yeah, I was just, I was just hooked on the buzz of the, of the kitchen and, you know, all the, all the guys in there and the hustle and bustle. And it was just, um, yeah, I loved it. Um, and then I decided right away that, um, I wanted to be a chef and the deal was if I could pass school C in New Zealand, which I don't know what year that is over here, but, um, I was 15 and, um, and then I was able to, to get out of school and then go to, to TAFE or Polytech in New Zealand and do the, the chef course. What were the venues and people that you worked with in, in New Zealand, um, when you were starting your career that sort of helped you on your path? Yeah. Um, so my first cooking job was with a French lady, um, Sandrine Auvoir, and she was an absolute weapon. And looking back now, I didn't really appreciate how good it was at the time. And like she was um, braising lots of things and really slow cooking. And, you know, I was, I don't know, I just uh, couldn't even set the timer and I'd burn almonds every day and stuff like that. But she, um, she was very patient. And then her partner, uh, Kirk, he'd worked at a, at a a fine dining restaurant in Wellington called the White House and the owner there, Paul Hoser, um, I ended up working with him after, after working with Sandrine and, um, he really took me under his wing and he had, he had traveled a lot and was quite, had quite an extensive cookbook collection in his office. And, um, he was actually the one that organized me to come to, to Sydney when I was 19 and do a, a stage at Rockpool. Um, and his his wife's um, sister was Catherine Adams, who was the pastry chef there at the time. So it was a bit of a little little foot foot in. And um, when I came over here, I was just absolutely mind blown because in New Zealand there was no in Wellington there was no real like solid Chinatown. There was some really good um, Asian grocery stores, but when I came over here and just saw what was happening at at Rockpool, and I was staying in Haymarket, and it was just like yeah, my mind was blown and just. Um, I'd never had food like that before, or and just and just knew I had to come back as soon as possible. Do you remember um, what it was like in the in the kitchen there at Rockpool? Do you have any stories of was it was it quite different to what you were used to? Oh, hundred percent! Like super intimidating, huge brigade. Like I think the biggest brigade I'd ever it was like five people, and yeah, that was just massive. And you know, at, at that time it was in the original spot on George Street, and they had all the tanks downstairs, and you know, kit, kit, um, prepping all the mud crabs every day, and. Um, and just all the, you know, copper pots and everyone just in super clean whites. And I was just, yeah, it was amazing. 
What were some of the venues sort of when you started your career in Sydney that sort of um, helped you sort of start to build your career? So when I came back, I went back to New Zealand after the stage and then, yeah, like I said, knew I had to come back. I came back and um, and obsessed with sort of um, really interested in, in Asian food. So I, I got a job with Martin Bowitz at Longgrain. Um, and that was, again, just fascinating. Never seen Thai food before. Um, and... Yeah, he was he was he was amazing, amazing to work with, and and the food was was crazy. Um, and then afterwards, I went. Um, and I'm going to rewind a little bit. In my boss's office in New Zealand, he always had the he had the Tetsuya cookbook, and I always used to look through it, think how cool it was, and how amazing that restaurant would be. And I and I when I came to Sydney, I actually never bothered applying because I didn't think I'd get a job there. And um, and when I was at Longgrain, uh, I was about to leave, and I saw that Martin Ben was working at the boathouse and he was sort of had left Tetsu years and I thought, oh, that'd be good to, you know, work for someone who at least had worked for Tets. Um, and uh, and so I went and met Martin and then ended up working with him for, for seven months at, at the boathouse. And um, and then when he, he announced he was leaving and said he was going back to Tets and would I like to come? So that was a, an amazing thing to happen and uh, and that's what ended up happening. So I ended up going to going with Martin to, to Tetsu years afterwards. Well, I want to explore what happened when you in the world of Tetsuya because you spent quite a bit of time there. But you mentioned Marty Boats and also Martin Ben. Do you have any stories of um, things you learn or moments in the kitchen at, at Longgrain with Marty? Oh, uh, Longgrain was very um, intimidating at first because it was it was so busy and like the food was so um, foreign. Like I had no idea about seasoning, and they they put me on woks straight away, and like I'd never used the wok in my life. <laughs> just you know, seasoning using that ladle with the, the the sugar and fish sauce and um it was uh it was yeah i got in trouble a lot i feel like i got told to hurry up a lot <laughs> but but it was um it was just very high high energy and even just like i mean that that place the way they used to prep food just with um their knife skills was was it, that was overwhelming as well because everyone used to sharpen the knives every day and they were you know cutting kefir lime to, like hair and it was um yeah the 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 skill level was very high, and I, I was yeah, I was a bit out of my depth when I first started there. Martin Ben is sort of not unlike yourself, sort of quite humble and a bit of an enigma, and um, likes to just go about their business. What's it like working with Martin? You worked with him at the boathouse and at Tetsu's as well. Do you have any stories of what that was like? Um, I loved working with Martin. Um, I think there was a there was a point there. Not so much at the boathouse, but I think just the when when I started um, with him at at Tetsuya's, there was a again it was very intimidating. Never worked in a brigade that large before. I think there was twenty five chefs, and it was very serious. And um, you know, even just I'm just thinking about like the the clean downs were pretty intense. Like in the hoods every day, like you know, really, really, really uh, professional. It was just a, a real level up, and. Um, yeah, I, I guess I was just a bit rattled every service because it was just a lot going on and trying to keep up. And I remember him just saying to me one day, like, you know, you're not a little boy. You, you need to you need to concentrate on what you're doing. And it was just like an instant snap moment that, okay, this is this is very serious. <laughs> and um, but I think that from that point on, it was um, yeah, it was amazing. Just a little a little word, and then it was um, yeah. I, I feel like things shifted a little bit for me, just trying to concentrate on what was going on a bit more. 
we've talked about the the kitchens of Tetsuya's with different guests and the incredible alumni that has come out of it. Um, what was it like for you being part of that brigade and seeing so many of those chefs go on and, you know, create new paths for Australian cuisine? Mm, I, I don't know what was about there. There was a, there was a couple of years there where there was just um, – I mean, Tetsuya's was very high on the top 50 list and everyone was there to, to, to actually be there. And I think the whole team, um, particularly with, with Martin there, was incredibly driven. Um, and there was a real, um, I don't know, just a real energy and, and, and drive to, to, to make it as good as it could be. And, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think there was any time for slackers. You know, everyone was there for, for a purpose. It's amazing to hear you say that you're quite intimidated sort of starting at Tetsuya's and, and yet you worked your way up to become the head chef. Like, it's quite extraordinary. What, what was it like taking that role and being in that role and the obligations of it? Yeah, I think, like, at, at that stage it was um, – I mean, I've been there for I've been there for four years um, by that point when, when that role came up and I was actually in um, – I was in Spain and, and – uh, Tets called and said that if, if I came back, the position was available. Um, and, and when I came back, um, despite being there for so long, again, I, f- I found it very overwhelming and just like, oh, wow, now I'm actually like, <laughs> you know, got to make sure everything works. And it was, like I said, very well oiled and the, the team was awesome. But it's a lot of people. It's still, you know, 25 people when making sure everything's um done properly every day um there was there was moments there i was like oh my god how do i how do i communicate with with all these people and that was a bit of a learning curve as well just just you know having to work out some sort of management system to 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 make sure everyone's doing the right the right thing tetsuya is a bit of an enigma as well tell us about the relationship you had with him and communicating his vision and through the food and to the staff as well. well do you have any stories of what that was like yeah, he's he's great. Um, he's he's an amazing chef, and um, and actually, I was, I was thinking about this recently because like there wasn't really no recipes at, at Tets. Everything was sort of um, demonstrated by by one of the head chefs or, or sous chefs, and and you know you tasted it and you you locked it in your brain and you wrote down what needed to happen, and that was how the recipes sort of went round. And um, in a way, you sort of open yourself up for huge inconsistencies. Inconsistency, sorry. But um, but Tets is it's got some great lines, and you know when 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 we're plating things up or he's doing something, you know he's always saying must taste, must taste, and like yeah, you, you do. I mean that's it. That's that's how you sort of develop your palate and and tune into what he's trying to put out, you know. Um, but he was um, yeah, he was he was a great boss and and um, huge opportunities working with him, and he's he was traveling a lot at that point, so we got some great opportunities to go overseas and we went cooking in Abu Dhabi and Hawaii a couple of times and Miami once and um yeah it was, it was good good hanging out with him and obviously he loves food so whenever you go out to eat with him that's a that's an experience in itself just he can he can he can eat the refinement and precision of the food at Tetsuya's is, is such a, a world away from sort of what you ended up doing with LP's quality meats. Tell us about that transition and, and how and why that occurred to sort of move into the realm of smoked pork and all these sort of big meat dishes. Yeah. Um, so when, when I was getting towards the end of, of my time as head chef at Tets, um, I, I was getting the sort of feeling that I wanted to open something and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. Um, 
and I thought I'd go for one last sort of overseas trip to, to New York and um, organised to do a stage at Blue Hill at Stone Barns and ate in loads of places in New York and super, super inspiring. Um, but then when I got to Stone Barns, it was, um, you know, it's a lot of people claim to have, you know, kitchen gardens and all sorts of stuff, but there's really nowhere like like Blue Hill. Um, and they have everything, you know, they're growing all their chickens, turkeys, geese, there's, there's pigs running around the forest. Um, and, and they, um, they, they grow their own wheat, they make whiskey, they, they serve four different types of butters when you sit down from four individual cows. Like it's just incredible. And, um, and so as soon as I got there, they were, um, they teamed me up with this guy, Jose, who was in charge of the sort of butchery department. And I'd really never done butchery before. And, when I was at TAFE or Polytech when I was a kid, I was not interested at all. I didn't want to be a butcher. I wanted to be a chef. So I was like not 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 focusing at all. And um, they were breaking down these Ossabao pigs. Um, and this guy was just like laser guided. Like I've never seen anyone make cuts like this, that this guy. And um, and then they were taking all the pig parts and turning it into charcuterie. And, and Adam Kay, who was sort of Dan Barber's right-hand man, he had about 150 smoked hams in the wine cellar and um, they were turning and stuff and they were so nice to me they were like if there's anything you want to know while you're at stone barns just let us know and my jaw was on the floor and i was like can you just show me all this because <laughs> i'd never i'd never done anything like it and um it just felt to me like super hands-on and and a bit more um you know rustic and 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 sort of visceral you're making things um whereas you know all the restaurants i'd worked in in the past they were quite sort of refined and you know, you could portion things to, to specific amounts and, you know, cut chives the perfect way. But, you know, if it came to doing all the stuff, I just, I, I just was, had no idea. So they, um, they were really good. And every two days they'd be like, okay, come upstairs. We're making sausages today or we're making hams or we're making salami. And yeah, I was just completely hooked because it was just sort of meat and salt and you could end up with something so complex in flavor. Um, and so when I came back to Sydney, uh, I knew, okay, well, I'm going to do something like something like this. Well, well, you certainly did. Tell us about the beginnings of, of LPs. How did it all come about? So, we, I, I was looking for for a site um, in in uh, Sydney, and um, I ran into Sarah Doyle, who is um, from the Portenia Group, and uh, I'd, I'd befriended her over the years because I used to go into Portenia a lot, um, pretty much every week um, for dinner. And she said, what are you doing now? And I said, oh, I'm, you know, trying to open a restaurant. And she's, oh, you're not at Tets anymore? I was like, no, no, I just came back from overseas. And um, she, she said, you should talk to Elvis and Joe and um, from, from Portenio. And um, I thought, oh, no, no, it's all good. I'm going to try and sort it out myself at the moment. And as it turns out, like a chef trying to open a restaurant is just no idea what's going on about leases and liquor licenses and DAs and all this sort of stuff. So I met up with Elvis and had a, had a coffee. And um, he said, oh, so Sarah said you're trying to open something. And I said, yeah, I want to open this, like, um, restaurant and told him what I wanted to do and he's like yeah I spoke to Joe we're doing it I was like oh what do you mean he goes oh no we're, we're going to do it and that was it we just sort of went from there so I was incredibly fortunate to team up with those guys because they held my hands through the whole thing because um, uh, yeah I, I, I had no idea how to do it and um, and then we were so we ordered the big smoker from from Tennessee in the States and um, yeah built the restaurant and got the sausage filler and, and, and we're away was it, t- take us back to those early days. Was there a bit of trial and error? Because you, you ended up with this stunning porchetta, which was a bit of a shift from people's ideas of smoked sort of pork and, and all the sausages and stuff. What were the challenges early on for you? 
So the challenges were like I'd, I'd obviously geeked out a lot at Stone Barns and, and bought a million books and, and was going through everything. But unless it's 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 again it's that it's that refinement through repetition and working out how things actually happen. And there were a lot of like misfires on the days. Like looking back now, um, everything was fine, but compared to how we do it now, it was pretty um, pretty amateur. <laughs> <laughs> in the early days and just doing the sausages because they're quite a funny little thing and they are so simple and it is the humble sausage but there's quite a lot of um uh i don't know science that goes into it if you want to if you want to nerd out about it um to 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 get them you know snappy and smoke well and all this sort of stuff um and yeah the porchetta as well like that was actually a a, a technique that elvis had shown me because they were doing it at, at porteño sometimes um but they would yeah roll the porchettas up and cook them at 70 degrees overnight and then um and then just blast them in a really hot oven and, and so the belly would just be absolutely molten inside from being cooked so long and then hammered at sort of 230 degrees and that crackling would just puff up um but it was awesome awesome technique and then from there we could develop what was going to be stuffed inside and what rubs went on the meat let's talk a little bit about pork it's so central to kind of what you're doing there with the small goods do, do you have any stories of the sort of connections you have with farmers and what you need from a pig yeah so in and i was thinking about this earlier it was like thinking about a lot of pork throughout my career and it hasn't been a, like a very reoccurring thing and um i guess once we started getting into the small goods um uh, we just discovered that you know for, for 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 us like doing what we do it just seems to be the superior um protein um and f- with the restaurant we used to be on a lot more of a smaller scale so we we were um using using specific little farmers um and uh now for for all the small goods we use um Burradale pork um and um and they they've been able to um, just deliver what we need because we're quite sort of um, cut specific um, with a lot of the products. We've tried many experiments before using like whole hog saucisson and, and whole hog mortadella um, and with amazing results, um, but just quite varied depending on, you know, how, how much fat's in these porks. We did a whole hog um, saucisson with using one of the extraordinary porks um, and incredible, but I mean, I loved it, but it was just like super fatty, but um but delicious, <laughs> and um, and then uh, I think we used a, a whole Toluca Park pig for for a whole hog mortadella that Monty wanted at the Dolphin once for a, for one of the wine party. Um, and again, it, it works, it works, um, but just a little bit in, inconsistent if that's what you were going to be trying to put out as a product. So now, um, yeah, like I said, very cut specific um, with the with the the cuts we use for all the products. Um, and now, um, yeah, now we now we use Burradale pork for all the all the products. Tell us a little bit about that cut selection. Can you take us through the cuts and what works best with a couple of uh, the small good examples? Yeah. So for um, and this is something that's taken a lot of trial and error over the years. So we used to use shoulders for for pretty much all the small goods um, because they sort of have a bit of a natural seventy um, percent lean meat, thirty percent fat ratio, um, and then. Uh, which is which is great for sausages, but then just the way we mix them now, we tend to start off with more lean meat, and then as in the secondary mix, we add the fat in, um, and that's primarily just because uh, when you mix meat with salt at, at around sort of zero to four degrees, you get a, a thing happen called um, myosin extraction, and so if you've ever made meatballs at home, and the meat gets really tacky and sticks to your fingers, um, you can wave it around. That's um, that's a, a prime example of myosin, um, and that myosin helps. Um, emulsify 
um, the fatten so that those um, that myosin can actually encapsulate the, the fat in, into the meat. So you get a really good bind and a really good emulsion. Um, so now for all the all the things like I said before, mortadella we use uh, leg because it's super lean. Um, it doesn't have a lot of uh, connective tissue like shoulders. You know, shoulders are the real working muscles on the pigs. Um, and uh, we start off using the leg meat and then mince it down, add the seasonings, and then in the secondary mix we add um, chopped up back fat um, and then and then emulsify them for, for a few for a few minutes. That's amazing. Your sausages are well. Are, um well, they're sort of daylight compared to most sausages. They're, they're pretty incredible. Um, but they also have to be treated a bit differently as a cook, as a home cook. Um, tell us a bit about how you make your sausages and, um, and also how to, how to cook them at home. Yeah. So the, the sausages, um, we do use shoulder. Um, we use shoulder meat um, that we was really trimmed out, so there's hardly any fat on it. And um, we grind them up, add the seasonings, all the things like, um, and this is probably coming from a bit of a, a chef perspective, um, we, we, any spices or anything we use, we toast and grind right before we add them to the um, mix, which seems like absolute common sense to us, but it actually isn't a very common practice. Um, and same with the garlic. Any, any garlic that goes into the thing has always been freshly um, grated or ground before it goes in. Um, whereas, you know, sometimes people just use garlic powder, and, you know, garlic powder is delicious, but using it what we use it for it needs to be more of a fresher um vibe and um and the sausages get filled uh and they get hung overnight just to dry out um just so the surface gets quite tacky and that's called a pellicle um and that way the smoke can adhere to that really well because if we just smoke them straight up which we have done in the early days of lps um the smoke doesn't really stick to them because they're still wet um and then after they get smoked they get cooled and and um, and that's it so they are fully cooked um Heating them back up, though, uh, they, they really benefit if they get poached first. So, again, in the early days, we were getting tagged in all these photos and people were sort of burning them before they were hot inside because they're because it's not raw, the heat transfer is a bit slower. So you can cook them really gentle on the grill or in the oven, but they do seem to work really well if they get poached first and then um, given a little sizzle on the barbecue or, or in a pan. Um, that way the, the heats through gently and then the casing just gets a really good snap to it which is um yeah we like that one one of the things i forgot to to bring up is the incredible um pizza restaurant that you have in sydney as well um bella bruto which you know people are queuing for and um just extraordinary um pizzas and dough tell us a bit about that the the dough is is quite special um how did you come about to land on the right dough um, so that was huge trial and error. Like, um, my partner Tanya and I, when she was pregnant, we were eating pizza like every second day and we we're talking about, um, something, something that LPs could flow into that'd be really cool. And as we're sitting there munching on these pe- the pizzas, we're like, we should have a pizza place. Um, and that way, you know, LP- LPs can make all the pepperoni, all the mortadella, all the salamis for it. And, um, we found the spot and we, um, we got in there and we got the oven installed and we started, we're actually doing pizza trials through, through the oven at Esther, um, after services was Maddie was an absolute legend after service. We'd whip over there with our trays of dough and put them through. Um, but once we got to the Bella site and we were using that oven, um, it was really not behaving the way we wanted it to. Um, and it started getting increasingly frustrating and we we're just writing, scribbling down notes everywhere and Tam was like, you need to stop because you've gone like full mad scientist. Do you know what you did with this dough? I was like, no. <laughs> She's like, you need to write it down. 
So we got there in the end, but we um, we basically make a, a pre-ferment. Um, so we do a, a large portion of the flour and, and water and all of the yeast and leave it for about eight hours. And it turns into basically like a big bubbly starter um, or mother, mother thing. And um, that gets mixed into the dough. And we, um, we then mix it, bulk ferment it overnight, cut it into the balls and roll it. And then optimally it's 48 hours before we make the pizzas. So it's a, a huge process. But um, yeah, by that stage we find that we're starting to get those big bubbly, blistery bubbles. Um, and um, yeah, another crazy thing, just like the, the good balance of el- elasticity and extensibility. It's <laughs> just, yeah, you can geek out. You mentioned the idea sort of came about that you could link sort of with LPs and, and showcase some of um, the small goods that you make. Has that, has that come to fruition and, and been a real sort of um, boon for the for Bella Bruta? A hundred percent. Bella Bruta was LP's best customer overnight. Like, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we made the pepperoni specifically for Bella. Um, and, you know, we started off doing them as tiny little um, pepperoni slices for those classic pepperoni cups but we just found that just for for putting the pizzas together and just for eating we found it was better if we just did a larger a larger format um pepperoni so we get more coverage on the pizza but um yeah basically all the pizzas have a lot of lps products on them um but yeah it's a very very good little closed loop you've built this extraordinary brand now um what, what what plans have you got for the next sort of year or two I think um, with LPs, we just really want to focus on on um, on our systems and, and how we're doing things. We actually need to start thinking about um, future um, buildings where we're going to be because we're still in the in the restaurant space and it works really well. But it's um, it probably doesn't make the the hugest business sense being in a half empty restaurant still producing out of there. But um, yeah, so I think that's probably the next thing on the cards, just working out where we're going to be um, and and looking at somewhere that's it doesn't have to be pretty. You know, it can be a it can be like a lots of cool rooms and hose the thing out at the end of the day. That's that's kind of what we need. Well, you're doing extraordinary things and um, making a lot of people very happy with with what you've created. What, what do you love about what you do? I love the the process. I think I think like. Um, Making the sausages and small goods like it's it's it has to be super clean and super precise and I I love I love that about it. Um, it's a bonus getting to eat delicious things at the end, but I think um, yeah, just 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 um, I, I think it's still fascinating. And even you know when I fell in love with it at Stone Barns, seeing um, the sausage song like it's just meat and salt and it gets hung up and blooms with white mold and it's 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 actually quite incredible. Well, uh, Luke, as always, it's. A- it's amazing to catch up with you and um, you're doing such amazing things. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. No, thank you very much. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.